Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. This morning we are launching a, a new series that uh, I've entitled All In. And the reason I've entitled it All In is because Jesus uh, was all in. Um, in in so many, many ways. Uh, uh, In Luke chapter 9, we're going to read from that in just a few minutes, but I want to share a a particular passage, verse 51 from Luke chapter 9 out of the Living Bible. It says this in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, the Living Bible says, As the time drew near for his return to heaven, Jesus moved steadily onward towards Jerusalem with an iron will. Jesus set his face, some translations say, towards Jerusalem because he knew the time had come for him to begin taking those steps to his death, burial, and resurrection. Paul, writing to the church at Philippi later, states in Philippians 2 that though he was God, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. In his birth... Jesus was all in. In his life and ministry, Jesus was all in. In his death, Jesus was all in. And Jesus was always all in for all people because of his great love. Jesus is all in with his love for all people. He loves the manic and the magnificent. He loves pagans. He loves priests. He loves... Historians and haters, he loves Pharisees and financiers. Jesus loves all people. He loves the lovable and the not so lovable. He loves addicts and architects. He loves image consultants and immigrants. Jesus loves everyone. When he walked the earth, Jesus had compassion and mercy towards all people from every walk of life. And that remains the same this day still remains the same. Now again, that verse that we read in Luke 9 was Jesus leading, heading up to his crucifixion and then the resurrection. And I want us to think about, as, as I've kind of walked through this this week, and my prayer has, has just been that our hearts over the coming weeks, as we think about the different kinds of people that Jesus poured his life out, that he was all in for, that maybe you and I would see ourselves showing up there. We're going to look at different groups of people who experience different kinds of brokenness in this fallen world and see how much Jesus loved them. And today we're going to start with a special group of people that Jesus loves especially. Our culture today would call them haters. See, Jesus is all in for haters. Jesus loves People who hate other people. And I want to start this first message of this new series by asking you a question. What do you hate? What do you hate? Now in a moment I'm going to give you an opportunity to turn to a neighbor and just tell them something that you hate. But I want to kind of prime the pump a little bit for just a minute. Get you thinking. Brussels sprouts. Now I personally love Brussels sprouts. But I hear there are people who who don't. You know, people who don't love Brussels sprouts. How about peas? Here people, some people don't love. How about repetitive TV commercials? Same one, over and over. And just 
How about when you open a new bag of barbecued potato chips and you discover that the bag is 80% air? <laughs> Anybody hate that? I mean, just things that... Th tax season. How many of you love tax season? Okay, not too many. Maybe if you work in that profession, you love it. You know? I hate bad coffee. I, I know I'm a coffee snob, but I just hate bad coffee. I'm not real fond of pigeons. You know? I, I'm just not. Um, here's something I hate. I hate the third one through a red light. Now, the first one through, you know, you're driving and the light's yellow and you, you know, try to, you speed up and you get through, it turns red on you. First one through, I don't have a problem with. Second, the, the second car following them through, I still don't have a problem with. That third car, I get in the flesh, man. I just, I get in the flesh over that. I also get in the flesh and I hate Latson Road at 5 o'clock when you come to 78. Because the people coming off of 78 onto Latson Road, that light turns red. That means nothing. They just fill in the intersection anyway. And so you're sitting there at a green light and nobody can move. You know, I hate that. They're just talking. I, I, I googled to see a top hundred list of things people hate. Here's a sampling. Uh, some people hate it when people drive too closely behind them. This one, I don't know. People who smell. I don't know whether that means they sniff you or they don't smell so good themselves. I don't know which it was. Um, people who eat with their mouths open. Foreign call centers. Can't understand a word they're saying. You know? Here was my favorite one. Running out of toilet paper in a public stall. Okay, take a moment and tell your neighbor just something that you hate, personally. Just take a moment, tell, tell your neighbor something you hate. I'm going to take a drink of water. Alright, I want to bring you back to another question for a moment. This is not a question that I want you to share the answer to with your neighbor though, okay? Here's the question. Is there someone that you hate? Again, don't, don't tell your neighbor. This is just a heart question for a moment. Is there someone that you hate? Can you think of anybody that maybe comes to mind right in the moment that just kind of stirs up antagonistic feelings for you? Because here's the deal, we're in a series called All In because Jesus is all in, even for that person that may have just came to your mind. You know, I, I think our world these days is pretty confused about love and hate. I, I read about a little five-year-old girl this week who got very angry with her parents and they sent her to her room and she was just so angry she wrote a note to them. Dear mom and dad, I hate you. Love, Nicole. <laughs> you know, well, I mean, hate has really created a lot of confusion. How many of you know who Mark Cuban is? The Shark Tank dude, okay? Mark Cuban, back in the, this past fall, I think it was October, November, he invested $200,000 in a new dating website app called Hater. 
Now, I don't do, I don't search on dating websites or anything like that. But here's what I've understand when I've had conversations with people who are on them. Um, most of the time, what a dating website does is it tries to match you with people who have some things that they like in common. Well, this new app was going to help people find people who hated the same things they hate. That was the, and Cuban, you know, he's a pretty sharp dude. He, he invested 200 grand in this. And the thing's really taken off. There are some other apps out there that have been developed in, uh, in, in that, that world that are hater apps. I do not encourage you to download them. I did some reading on them. Uh, and basically what's happened is there, there are people who got upset that they couldn't express their hatred or dislike of stuff. You know, like on Facebook, you can like stuff. Or on Twitter, you can like things, but you couldn't hate on anything um, without, you know, expressing it in words. And so they've created a, a whole space in the social community now for haters. And you can go on and hate on politicians. You can hate on celebrities. You can just hate on anything that you want to hate on. And it's just kind of making a culture that already seems filled with hate, there just seems to be popularizing it. Now when it comes to hate in the word of God, God takes this hatred thing very seriously. So much so that over 200 times, the, the, this idea of hate, hatred, hating, the, the Bible addresses that issue pretty predominantly. It's not going to come up on the screen right now. You might want to write it down, go back and look. But in Galatians chapter 5, Paul calls hatred the work of the flesh. Again, not on the screen yet, but back in Leviticus chapter 19, the scripture says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. So don't do that. Hatred shows up in many forms in the scriptures. It can be yelling at somebody. It could be foul language or persecution as it's expressed. It could be avoiding or shunning somebody. The Bible calls that hate. But I, I don't want to give us a kind of a theology on what the Bible says hate is. I, I want us to think about what the scripture says. And even though Taylor Swift, and I got this wrong in the first service and I got corrected about it. Even though, I think I said Britney Spears in the first service. Even though Taylor Swift says that haters got to hate, 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 hate. It is Brit, uh, Taylor Swift that said that right. Saying that, okay, okay. Um, got it right this time. Jesus said no. Jesus said, haters don't have to hate, 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 hate. Jesus says, there's actually a better way. And Jesus deals with, in his life and ministry, Jesus deals with two forms of hatred. The first form of hatred is the hatred that comes from you. The second form of hatred is the hatred that comes for you. The first kind, Jesus says, we can avoid. The second one says, if you're going to follow him, you'll never avoid it. You'll never avoid it. So I want us to look at both of these. One that flows from us and one that comes at us. The first one, I believe, is rooted in pride, personal selfishness and hypocrisy. The second one is just, frankly, an occupational hazard of being a follower of Jesus Christ. So let's begin with the first one. And I want to do that by going back to Luke chapter 9, where we really are launching this series out of. In Luke chapter 9, I'm going to read from the New American Standard Version today. Because Jesus has a, an encounter in Luke chapter 9 with some extreme haters from his own tribe, if you would. Luke chapter 9, we're going to read, uh, go back and read verse 51. says this, And it came about... When the days were approaching for his ascension, that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and they entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. And then listen to the response of the Samaritans. And they did not receive him, because he was journeying with his face towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, saw the response of the Samaritans, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he, being Jesus, turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And then this section of scripture concludes with this phrase. And they went on to another village. This is the word of the Lord. Now, one of the things that I, I hope that we can be captured by in that passage of scripture is just the, just the pure humanity. Just the pure humanity in there and, and also some of the humor that's kind of connected there. See, two of Jesus' disciples, in fact, two of the big three, Peter, James, and John were kind of the inner circle disciples, you know. And this is, you know, had this been Judas, it wouldn't have freaked me out so much. But this is James and then John, who's known as the apostle of what? Love. I mean, every time you see or read about John, there's something related to, to the love he's experienced of Jesus and the way we should love one another. You know, so it's kind of like when you discover for the first time that your sweet grandma knows swear words. You know, and you go, Grandma, you know, when we read that passage, that's how we should look at, we should go, John, James, you know, it's, it's the same kind of experience. I mean, these, these two guys, they were part of the God squad, man. They were just in, and now they're more like the Galilee Gestapo, you know, they just wanted to rain fury down on people. I actually believe it's because of this account that when we go back and we read in Mark chapter 3 a list of the apostles, just this list in Mark 3, it, it gives the nickname of James and John. What were their nickname? Sons of Thunder. That was what they were nicknamed. I think it's because of this moment in time when they said, Jesus, you want us to nuke them? You know, I, th I think, you know, we'll just call fire down. Now, some quick background, so this kind of, because there's context to this, so this makes a little more sense. Just maybe a few days or even weeks before this happened, it's recorded in, in the same chapter we just read from Luke 9. You can go back to verse 28 and read about it. Um, just before this, Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. He left nine of the disciples down in the valley. He took three of them up on a mountain. And on that mountain, the Bible tells us that Jesus was transfigured. He became glowing white, and Elijah and a Moses appeared. And they just kind of had this special meeting, and Peter, James, and John are watching this going on. Voice of God speaks into that. It's incredible. I believe that they were still living out of that Elijah testosterone moment when they said this. I believe, how many of you have ever gone to like a, you know, a movie, a Marvel movie, you know, Hero, Captain America, or Fast and the Furious, and you get back in your car, and you're testosterone charged, and you're thinking, come on world! Well, I think that was, I think they were Elijah charged. I think they had had this moment with Elijah, and man, they were breathing fire, we're gonna bring fire down, baby. You know? There was also some more history of this. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. Hated each other. 
The kingdom, the nation of Israel got divided after Solomon's reign. And after the division, uh, some foreign armies came in and conquered them, took some of them off, brought some people that they had, other peoples they had conquered and planted them in the northern area of Israel. And they began to intermarry. Finally, after the captivity was over and they came back into Jerusalem, there was a division that separated these two because the Jews looked at them as kind of half-breeds. And so this hatred and antagonism arose between these people groups. And so much so that when they began to rebuild the temple, the Samaritans offered to help. And the Jews said, no, we don't want your hands touching our new temple. I mean, it was just kind of like that. And so, this, the, the, they went and built their own temple up north. And began this kind of cult worship uh, that was dishonoring to God. And all of this is part of the background of that story that brings James and John to the point when, when they go through town and these guys disrespect Jesus that they loved. They said, let's just bring fire down. Let's br bring the rain. Now... How does Jesus handle this? How does Jesus handle this? Because it's a, I believe, a model of how we're supposed to handle both haters in us and haters around us. How, how we do this. And there are three things that show up pretty quickly in Scripture that I want, I want to point out. First of all, if hatred forms in you, at some point your mouth needs to be rebuked. The words that come out of your mouth need to be rebuked when hate comes out. There needs to be rebuking. The Bible tells us that immediately Jesus did this. They, they made this statement and the Bible tells us that Jesus turned and rebuked them. I think it means he turned on his heels and immediately got in their face and, and, and rebuked them. Now Jesus, I believe, does this rebuking because he loves James and John. And he loves the Samaritans. And he loves the other ten disciples that just heard this hate come out of their mouths. And he doesn't want it to affect them. He sees the hatred flowing out of them. And Jesus has other plans. You know, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 3 verse 19, that Jesus himself spoke these words. Whom I love, I rebuke. Jesus loves you, he's going to rebuke you. Now, think about this for a minute. The Samaritan worship that was going on was false. It was cultic worship. And Jesus was coming into town, and they probably wanted him to stop and come to their, their temple and worship. But Jesus was, where was Jesus headed? He was headed to Jerusalem. He was heading to die on Calvary's cross for the Samaritans. They didn't know that. And so, it, it creates anger in them, and they, they, they disrespect him, and it burns up inside of these disciples. Now folks, Jesus I think is trying to help his followers understand something by his rebuke. You and I cannot force people to adopt our belief system. We can't make people adopt our release belief system and just saying words like that, just expressing hatred towards people that will not adopt your belief system, Jesus chastised, I mean he comes down on it. Because it's harmful to the rest of the body. Yes, they're rejecting Christ and it's shameful. Yes, it's a horrible thing to do. But Jesus, I think in this moment, is say, saying hating those people for it is even worse. It's a more wicked kind of sin because it infects the souls of everybody around it. And so he rebukes their words. 
And when words like that come out of the mouths of believers, it needs to be rebuked. See, Jesus rebuked in love. And one of the great ways the Christian community, the church of, of Jesus, should live and function in love is by rebuking one another. You know, if somebody who is a Christ follower says something like that with that kind of hatred coming out of it, with that kind of prejudice, you stop them. You say something to them out loud. You rebuke them in love. Maybe they've never heard that before. Maybe they didn't, maybe for the first time James and John come to realize Jesus loves Samaritans. He cares about what was going on there. I read to you the first half of a verse from Leviticus 19 a moment ago. It's going to come up right now. Here's what the whole verse says. It says, do not hate your brother in your hearts. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in his guilt. Folks, if we hear anger and hatred and bitterness coming out of the mouth of a believer and we don't rebuke them, we become complicit in that hate. We become a participant in that hate. And if hate comes out of our mouths, we need to have somebody in our lives deeply enough to say, no, that's sin. We need people to rebuke like Jesus did. Second thing, if hatred forms in you, your mouth needs to be rebuked, but then your heart needs to be checked. If you are a hater, if that kind of language is coming out of your mouth, your heart needs to be checked. See, in verse 55, Jesus says, when he turned and rebuked them, he said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. You don't understand, you don't see what's going on in the depths of your soul. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is saying, well, boys, you got a good memory. You remember all about, you know, that Elijah thing. You saw him on the mountain. You thought back to 1 Kings when he rained fire down, you know, at that moment on Mount Carmel. You remember the, the other time in 2 Kings when, when he rained fire down twice and took out 100 soldiers. You remember that. That's good. You have a great memory. A plus on Bible memory for the week. You get a star. But your hearts are broken. Your memory's great, but you have ungodly motives in what you're trying to do here. Could that be said of some of us today? That our memory and knowledge of God's word is great. We can read it. We can quote it. We can soap it. We can do all kinds of things in it. But the attitude of our heart is far from the reality of the love that centers and flows out of the word of God. See, Jesus is far more concerned about the content of your heart than he is with your scripture memory capacity. He's, he's deeply interested in your attitudes more than your aptitude. He cares about what's going on. I mean, even if you have the ability to call fire down from heaven, which, you know, that'd be kind of a cool trick. Jesus is more concerned about you. you know, Jesus didn't stop and say, dude, you can do that? Wow, I'm impressed. That's, Jesus didn't, he didn't go there at all. Because he was not concerned with their aptitudes, but with their attitudes, which were all wrong. And here's what Jesus, I think, is pointing out. I think Jesus is saying is, our attitudes are like the rudder of our lives. Our attitudes are what controls our lives. I am personally convinced that life 
is kind of 10% about what happens to you and 90% of how you respond to it. And, and I get that sometimes that 10% is all whacked out. You know, sometimes that 10% is an absolute mess. But the other 90% is so important because it's about our attitudes, our attitudes. And Jesus is concerned there, so we need to check our attitudes when we're dealing with someone or something. Let me ask it this way. When you look at people, sometimes people who are challenging, do you ever look and see an inconvenience? Do you ever maybe look at a person and see somebody that's just kind of in your way right now? Of accomplishing whatever you need to accomplish. Do you look at a, another person and fo- thoughts just kind of form, you know, they're just no good. Or in this season of your life, are you kind of beginning to view challenging people as a means by which God wants you to grow, to be more like him? See, we, we need to check our heart. We need our mouths rebuked, and we need to have a check on our heart. Third thing that I see from this account, encounter, is this. If hatred begins to form in you, there's going to be a point in time when you're going to have to surrender your mind fully to God. Fully to God. Because if hatred is forming in you, then what that means is there are some prejudices that have formed in your mind. And they have to be surrendered to God. Those prejudices have to be purged so that the purposes of God can find their way in your life and the lives of those around you. Look at verse 56 from from our account today. Jesus says, For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to do what? Save them. That was the purpose. God's purpose here was save them. You know, in this text, James and John are blinded blinded from God's purposes by their prejudice. And prejudice can blind you from seeing the purposes for the lives of people around you. Prejudice here blinded them to what God's purpose was for the Samaritans. What was it? To save them. He wanted them to come to know him. In 2 Peter, Peter writes these words. He says, the Lord is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that All should reach repentance. Who's excluded from all? Nobody. It's all inclusive. Jesus is all in for all people all the time. See, God's purpose for people always, always trumps our prejudices. Always needs to trump our prejudices. Prejudice is just simply a seedbed. It's the soil in which hatred can warm and grow. And here's the deal. Whenever we meet somebody... Human nature is to kind of sum them up. We look at what they're wearing. We look at their hairstyles. We, we do certain assessments of them. And we kind of form a conclusion. We look and see a white person or a Hispanic person or a black person or a homosexual person. Or just, we make all these judgments about people. What would it be like to have all that stripped away? To choose to just strip all of that away and see them as a person? Created, bearing the image of God with a purpose from God for their lives. What if we started seeing that purpose? Well, if we could, we would surrender our prejudices and we would start pursuing the purposes of God for their lives. 
So here's kind of the big question of the morning. It's going to come up on the screen. You may want to write it down. I don't know. But here's the big question of the morning. Are any of my prejudices standing in the way of God's purposes for someone else? Are any of my prejudices standing in the way of God's purposes for another person? Is that going on? Are my words, the words that I use where I live, work, and play, standing in the way of God's purposes for someone? Is my attitude, is my heart standing in the way? Are thoughts that I have formed or prejudices in my mind? See, James and John, they make this suggestion. And Jesus rebukes them. And he says to them, you know, no. And then the Bible says they just go on to another village. Now, the reason that last phrase is so interesting to me is it kind of feels like it got swept away a little bit. But you need to know something. By the time we get over to Acts chapter 8, James and John have changed. And we see this in a story. This is after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus in Acts chapter 8. John and Peter go to Samaria. And there, the gospel has been proclaimed in a powerful way, and a revival breaks out. In Luke chapter, I mean, in Acts chapter 8, Luke writes about this. Luke, uh, Acts chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, it says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them. They laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. What would have happened to those Samaritans if John had successfully called fire down months before? The purposes of God would not have been accomplished in their lives. See, God is at work doing things we can't see. There, had been, there would have been no Samaritans there to hear the gospel. No Samaritans there to be saved. But because Jesus rebuked, because Jesus stepped into that, John shows up in this town months later. He's loving on these Samaritans. He's proclaiming the gospel to them. He's laying his hands on them, praying over them. I imagine weeping over them. Now again, it doesn't say this. I just imagine this. I imagine some of those same Samaritans who were there the day Jesus, he, they said, John said, let me bring some fire down, Jesus. I imagine them being in the room where John's praying over them. I imagine John being in the room, laying hands on them because they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And I imagine today, John is united in heaven with some of those same Samaritans that he wanted to wipe out. See, we have to have a vision of the, of the glory of God that way. Because that's the only thing that will ever drive out the hatred that gets so easily formed in our hearts these days. We have to be captured by God's vision. So even if you're a hater, you need to know this. Jesus loves you. And Jesus has something for you. And that thing is greater than your hate. It's something for all eternity. But you've got to deal with your mouth. You've got to deal with your heart. And you've got to deal with your mind. That's what you've got to deal with when hatred is coming from you. But what about when hatred is coming for you? What do you do when hatred is coming for you? Now, today, Vice President Mike Pence could probably come talk about this. Because he has had hatred come for him because of his stand of faith in Jesus. This past week, Governor Mike Huckabee 
could come and stand today because this past week he was kicked off of a board for the Country Music Awards because of his stance on scripture and his faith in Jesus. He, they could do it. But as good as they could be, I want us to look at what Jesus said about this issue. Okay, so grab your Bibles in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to do this real quickly. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. And the Lord is teaching his disciples a very important lesson about what happens when, not when hatred is coming from you, but when hatred is coming for you. We're going to start reading in verse 43. It says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same. See, there are going to be people who will curse you. Because you follow Jesus. Who will use you falsely. And who will hate you. Considering you an enemy. Now I know if some of you are saying. Well Joe I don't have any enemies. If you go to Webster Dictionary. And look up the, 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 the definition of what an enemy is. It's somebody who has antagonism towards you. It's an antagonist if you would. That's just the truth about it. And we all have antagonists in our lives. You can maybe even think of somebody right now. Who's kind of an antagonist in your life. And Jesus said, even those people, you should love. He goes on to tell us that those people could even come from your own household. They could be maybe one of your own family because you've decided to follow Jesus with a full heart. And they're going to come after you with hatred and persecution. So what do you do in a moment like that? What do you do when that, it's coming for you? Because Jesus said, the world is going to hate you. It's not going to come up on the screen, but you may recall when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples. He said, you know, if you were of this world, the world would love you. But because you are not of this world, the world is going to hate you because you've chosen to follow me. Now again, the, the series is about Jesus being all in for all people. All people. And today in particular for people who hate Jesus loves those who are going to hate his followers. He still has love for them. So think about this. Yes, Jesus means that I should love my enemies. He actually means that. Now when I sat down and thought about that and was praying for it, here's what I told the Lord. Jesus, that's just the pits, man. I mean, that, when, when, you, when you read that and you, Jesus says, love your enemies, I'm thinking, I don't want to. Just tell you my flesh. Okay, that's my response. I, I don't want to. I don't think any of us thinks, oh, goody, 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 get to love my enemy today. But Jesus says it's a better way to live. He says, love them. Do good for them. Pray for them who are against you. Because it is coming. It is going to be an occupational hazard of everyone who trusts Jesus. If you are going to live in such a way that you demonstrate with your life the gospel and you declare with your mouth the glory of God through the gospel, you're going to be persecuted. Now, you could decide that what you're going to do is you're going to become an agnostic or an atheist. You could go out and drink yourself under a chair. You could go out and be the most prominently promiscuous person in the world. And the world's probably going to say, well, that person, they're okay. 
But the moment you speak out of your love for Jesus and your devotion to his word, guess what? They're going to clamp down on you. They're, they're going to come after you. They are not going to cheer. They're not going to cheer you on. And so John the apostle, again, this loving apostle, when he was shepherding a flock of people, he had heard Jesus talk about that. And so he warns his flock. In 1 John chapter 3, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that they did not know him. See, it, it's not really about you personally. It's about your Lord. And so in verse 13, John says to his flock, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. God's word says, don't, don't get up, you know, don't get shocked. Don't get your feathers all ruffled up when the world hates you. The world's going to hate. So what do you do? What do you do when you find that hatred is being formed against you? Well, here's what Jesus says. He says, respond with love. And then he gives us three ways to do that. He says, respond with love. We're going to move through this. This is Jesus' threefold plan. It's not, these aren't going to come up on the screen. You're going to have to write them down. But they literally come straight out of Matthew 5, 44. This is not rocket science, I know. Jesus says this in verse 44. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And I want us to consider just for a moment each of these. Bless those who curse you. That's the first one. He says, bless those who curse you. And what that means is don't retaliate. Instead, think of something good for them. Instead of thinking some nice juicy comeback when they say something to you, seek to bless them. Proverbs 15 tells us this. A soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. And so what Proverbs is telling us is the choice is ours. When, when, when anger comes at us, we get to choose our response and in some ways help determine the outcome. So what do you want? Do you want to live in an explosive environment all the time? Do you want to be in contention all the time? Well, if you don't, you can choose. You can make some choices about this. A soft anger, I mean a soft word turns away anger. Now, it is many of our natural inclination when somebody comes at us and verbally assaults us to lash back. Some of you have sharp wits. You are just sharp-witted. And when somebody comes at you, you just, I mean, before they're finished, you got a comeback that's just right there and telling you talk. Jesus says, don't. Jesus says, don't do it. Don't, don't go there. Jesus says there's a better way. In his book, How to Have Confidence and Power in Dealing with People, Les Giblin reports of some research that was being conducted um, by the, the speech research unit at Kenyon College. And it was in conjunction with the United States Navy. And what they found is that is if somebody shouts an order at somebody, oftentimes the person will respond by shouting back at the same tone or maybe even a higher tone. And this thing, this is where escalation begins to happen. And so they started, when they, when they came to realize this, they started trying to do some special testing in certain situations. And they came up with some, what they considered to be scientific knowledge that allows a person to keep somebody else from becoming, first allowing yourself not to become more angry and actually de-escalating the situation. And studies have proven that if you will soften your voice in such settings, you won't become angry. You won't get sucked into the vortex. 
And not only that, that you can, in some ways, control how the other person manages the conversation. If you will change what you're doing, your response to this. Giblin goes on in his book to say that psychology has accepted as scientific fact the old biblical injunction which says, a soft answer turns away wrath. Go figure. The word of God comes through again. Now, I can tell you, some of you know this, I've battled anger. That was my demon for many, many years. I've tried it both ways. For years, I tried, you know, losing my cool and escalating. When somebody would shout at me, I'd shout back higher. They get that angry tone, I would get angrier. But as God has given me more grace, I have learned to speak in those settings in a more humble tone, in a more even keel tone, and when necessary, apologizing when, I, when I've needed to. And almost every time that I've done that, that conversation has ended with the person I'm in conversation, maybe conflict with, getting to the place where we have spent more time talking about what we have in common than the one thing that we were divisive over. We spend more time in communing together than we do fighting one another. And I've, I've walked away from some of those conversations going, wow, the teachings of Jesus work. You know, I know you're saying, duh, Joe, you're a pastor. Shouldn't you know that? Well, yeah, but I still get excited when it happens. It actually works in real time. It works in our lives. So Jesus says, bless those who curse you. Respond differently. Respond in a loving, soft word. Second thing that Jesus says here in verse 44 is do good to those who hate you. Just think for a moment about somebody, maybe in the past, but maybe somebody right in the present who kind of has an antagonistic spirit towards you. You know, every time you enter one of the spheres where you live, work, and play, they just belittle you. They have snide remarks ready for you. It just feels like they're antagonistic towards you. What would happen if you chose to do something good for them? This past week, as I was preparing for this, I did some different reading on this. And one lady gave testimony that she began, when she would encounter antagonistic people that way, she would buy them gifts. And she would attach an encouraging note. She would do something, literally do something good for them. She talked a little bit about um, a, a time when a new worker came into her office who just seemed to have an antagonistic spirit immediately towards them and they just butted heads pretty quickly and then she got kind of, came back to her senses and she said, Lord convicted her. So she bought this lady a gift, something that she knew uh, that she would like. She wrote a note and basically apologized for her part of this and said, we got off on the wrong foot. And I I really believe you have a lot to offer our office and uh, I would just like for us to be friends and work together for good. That's what she said. Literally, this, this idea comes straight out of scripture. Um, Proverbs chapter 18 verse 16 says this, a man's gift makes room for him. When you give a gift to somebody, it makes space in your life to be received by them. It goes on to say, and brings him before the great. See, ju just, just send a gift. I I've read this and I thought, I'm going to employ this the next time I feel like I've gotten into a contentious relationship with somebody. And I need to move in. Because the word of God has power. Third thing that Jesus said, if you're going to love your enemy, that you got to do, is you got to pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, I have found this to be just centrally true to my own life. When I move somebody from my hit list to my prayer list, things change dramatically. They may stay on my hit list for a while, 
But as I commit to pray for them by name, they fall off my hit list. They just fall off. They become somebody I care about. They begin to be somebody that I see in the image of God instead of the image that I've distorted. Now, here's the other deal. Very seldom have they changed. Very seldom have they changed. Do you know what's happened mostly? God's changed me. God's changed my thoughts about that person. I began to see them as somebody that Jesus loves. Even if they're hating on me, Jesus loves them. And I begin to see them that way. And it changes the way I move and act and interact with them. Now here's, here's the deal on this, folks. If you don't do this, if you choose to reject Jesus' teaching, he's still going to love you. He's still going to love you. That's the root of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. But here's what's going to happen. If you don't forgive, if you don't love, if you don't pray for your enemies, if you don't do good for them, you're going to find out you've got a new enemy. That enemy is going to be an enemy on the inside. And the enemy on the inside is always worse than any enemy on the outside. Because it will destroy. Enemies like bitterness and anger and resentment. Those things will fill your heart and soul. Unless you deal with these external enemies the way Jesus directs us. So Jesus says respond with love. He gives us three ways to do that. And then Jesus... In helping us understand what happens when we respond in love, he goes on to teach us this, is that when hatred forms against you, you can represent the God of love. You can love like God and then you can represent the God of love. From verse 45, Jesus says, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. When you love like that, people are going to notice that you belong to something different than they do. You belong to, to, to God, your Father. Some of you have heard that old adage, like Father, like Son. And it's just the truth. If you love like Jesus did, people are going to associate that. Several of you have told me uh, of times when, in, a, in an environment where you live, work, and play, when you have been trying to demonstrate the gospel, that somebody has come to you and says, I see Jesus in you. Ask you, are you a Christian? One of my favorite stories is a story that um, I read in a devotional. It was written by a, a manager at a shoe store. Um, it, was, it was a shoe store in a big city. And um, he said there was a day when this little, little boy uh, that you could tell was kind of poor walked up to the window of the store and just started looking in. And he just stared at the shoes in there. And um, he noticed him a couple of times. He said he was there about 15 minutes or so. And then he noticed, he looked back out and he saw a lady, a very immaculately dressed lady, talking to this little boy. And the next thing you know, she brings him in and tells the manager, I want to get a pair of shoes for him. And so the manager goes back and by the time he comes back, she's gotten his shoes off and his socks are filthy. They have holes in them. You can see part of his feet. His feet are filthy. And so she asked the manager of the store, would he go get a basin of water and a cloth so she can wash this little boy's feet? Which she does. And she washes his feet and she buys him not just one pair of socks and shoes, but she buys him three pairs of socks and new shoes. And she basically sends him on his way. And she starts cleaning up the, the basin and the, the towel. The man's back at his counter red, ringing up somebody else. And she's gone back to clean that up. She brings that up to the counter. And while she's there, she feels somebody tugging on her coat. And it's the little boy again. 
And the little boy looks up at this woman and says, Are you God's wife? <laughs> Folks, if, if the way, if there's not a direct relationship between the way we're living our lives and our own personal relationship with God, something's amiss. People, people need to see Jesus living out of us. And one of the primary ways they do that is the way that we love. In John 13, Jesus said this, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, by the way you love. The way you love each other. The way you love your enemies. Now I know that for many of you in this room, a great deal of this was not new information. You know, we thrive on information as Christians. We get one more. Give us the new information. You know what Jesus is most interested in? Jesus is most interested in our lives and the transformation that comes from the old stuff we're not doing yet. And maybe, just maybe today, instead of, you know, walking out of here and saying, well, that preacher, he was Captain Obvious today. Maybe instead of doing that, maybe what you want to leave today thinking is, God, is there prejudice in my, my mind, my heart? Is there something that I need to be rebuked by? Spirit, rebuke me. God, is there something that I need to be transformed in? Is there, is there an attitude in my heart that needs to be checked? You know, even unbelievers know enough about God's Word to know that Christians ought to love. And one of the greatest complaints that flow out of the mouth of unbelievers about believers is that we don't live out our faith. Folks, we are supposed to shout our faith. But most of us forget that the language that we're supposed to speak in is the language of love. The gospel of love. As a Christ follower, you will be hated. But you do not have to become a hater. Others are going to hate you. But they will not win. Unless you let them. Unless you hate them back. So bless them. Do something good for them. Pray for them. Move them from your hit list to your prayer list. Take the gospel to them through your deeds and through your words. Share Jesus that way. And the Bible says you will be known as the children of God. Let's pray. Father God, we come. We come having heard your words, Jesus, washing over us. And in some small way, for all of us, Lord, I think there are places where hatred towards an individual or a group of people has found traction in our hearts. And so we, we come, we arrive today at this moment, Lord, saying to you, search our hearts, O God. And if needs be, rebuke us. Rebuke us, Lord. Holy Spirit, rebuke us. We don't want to leave this room with a heart that is keeping your purposes from being fulfilled in a person or a group of people. So rebuke us, Holy Spirit. 
Search your hearts. Change your minds. And Lord, I pray that you will ready us when those moments come, when we're going to be hated, that we're not, we won't be surprised when we're hated by the world, but we'll be ready. We'll be ready armed with love. We'll be ready armed to do good. We'll be ready to pray. So we come offering ourselves to you now, Father. We come bringing all of ourselves to you, believing with our whole hearts that it's the best place for us to be, even when we don't understand it at first. So God, I pray for myself and the people of the river that we will be known as people who love our enemies, who do good for them, so that we will be known as your children. And glory will come to you, not to us, God. We want you glorified because of it. So we come now giving you ourselves again in worship. We come bringing you from our resources financially. The ways that you have blessed us, we give it back to you through our tithes and offerings. Asking you to use it to multiply it so that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do what you will in us now, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9:30 or 11 o'clock services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.